welcome to episode five of the Sang Medi podcast. Today we have Bill Pockert, and he was a tech inspector for Formula SAE. He worked on aircraft maintenance and safety inspections for Delta Airlines for 40 years. Um, what else did you do, Bill? You were a mentor for FSAE, for Cal State LA for how many years now? Well, I'm still doing it, but I, uh, I started in 12, January of 12. So, so for eight years? Well, wow. this is actually nine. Nine. Okay, nine, nine years. Born, born in the number 10, the 21st. 2000, 2000. Almost a decade. Almost a decade. Yeah. They better buy you a present. Uh, <laughs> I'll have a, a decade party. Decade party for sure. All right. So those are kind of the highlights. Um, you were also in the military for, you said, and it's funny that you, you had such a specific amount, 21 months and four days. <laughs> it was in the Army can tell you exactly how long they were in. Down to the minute. <laughs> <laughs> they know down to the minute, huh? Um, and you said that you were uh, an Army helicopter crew chief. So right. you worked on helicopters. Yeah. All right. Um, any other notable facts that you want to mention? I, well, when I came out of the Army, I, I came, I, I was, when I first started with the airlines, I was in Chicago. And working in Chicago is tough. The weather is just brutal. And the same work that they do out here at LAX, they're doing back in Chicago on the ramp. So we did jobs at night that were so, I mean, your hands get so cold, you might put in one bolt and then go warm up and put a second bolt and then warm up. It was just that tough. And uh, uh, so the first opportunity I got to come out here, I took it. I probably could have come about a year earlier than that, but I met my wife just about that time, and I postponed the uh, the transfer until I decided what I wanted to do. But and I came out here with the intention of going to college. I went to uh, Northrop Institute of Technology, which is just up the road here at uh, in Inglewood. So I attended there about eighteen months, but between buying cars and houses and having babies. <laughs> A little bit, a little bit hectic. Chasing the the LA sun. Well, what I did was I, I wound up going back to school. Um, I I was offered a job at one point uh, back in about seven, well, about 96, 97. I, I could have retired after nineteen ninety six, but I didn't retire until oh uh, five, and I uh, I at the time. Uh, they offered me a job as an instructor at uh, one of the local junior colleges in aircraft maintenance. And I decided that, that uh, well, the, the options were, if you had a PhD, you didn't need any experience in aircraft maintenance at all. But I can't imagine anybody with a PhD working as a maintenance instructor. But that, that's beside the point. If you had no experience, no degree, but you had like 12, 14 years of experience, that was good. Well, I had at that time over 30 years of experience, but um, no degree. So I went back and got my AA degree from uh, Northrop. And uh, between my, all the classes I took for aircraft maintenance and engineering classes I took up there, they were more than willing to give it to me. But I had to go back to, to school 
and get one more class because of the state law regulations, you had to attend college in the year in the in the year in which you got your degree. So when I left Northrop, I could have got it then, but I did not. What do I need it for? So as I went back and got the degree, and here I am. All right. So but I never took the job in, as a maintenance instructor. Why I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um, the first question we have for you is is what your responsibilities were with helicopters. How did like what kind of work did you do on them? Or as a helicopter chief, a crew chief, like what were your responsibilities? Well, as a helicopter crew chief, you fly with the aircraft. So it's in your best interest to make sure that aircraft is as perfect as you can get it. So I would do all the routine maintenance on it. Every day I did a, 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 a standard inspection where we check all the oils. You uh, uh, made sure that uh, everything was, was right up to specs. Uh, we, we Then before we'd fly, the, the uh, flight crew would come out and they'd do a, what they call a walk around. They'd do an inspection on it. And then after we came back, I'd do another inspection on it. And uh, as a crew chief, you actually have the authority to ground the aircraft. At that time, I don't know how it is now, but the uh, military logbooks had a, a one column for status. And if you put a red X in that column and then stated the reason, that aircraft wasn't going to go anywhere until somebody signed it off, whether it was the crew chief or maybe it was uh, uh, the, the chief inspector for the, company, the military company or whatever, but but it was, you had a lot of authority. And it was a lot of fun because you flew with the aircraft everywhere it went. I mean, we were in a unit that was building up to go to Vietnam. So we would uh, take up a lot of VIPs and fly them around and show them the base. A lot of people wanted to see what was going on at, at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. We'd go out and fly around. Uh, we went to a uh, ROTC drill meet back in uh, uh, Champaign, Illinois at the University of Illinois. So I went back with the aircraft back there and they had static displays and people come out and want to see the aircraft and ask all kinds of questions. And they generally run out of questions about two or three minutes into the question. <laughs> I could have gone a lot further than that. I mean, we. What was the coolest helicopter that, that you worked on? Well, I worked, I worked on, on the, the C model of Huey. There was at the, at, when I was in, there were two models of Hueys, the, the, the C model and the D model. C model was a short frame, and the D model was a longer frame. The D model was for medevac and for uh, troop carrying. And then after that, they came with an H model, which was a little higher powered uh, uh, D model. But I was on a C model, which was a, a Huey gunship. And we carried uh, two Gatling guns, one on either side, and they were carry, capable of like 6,000 rounds a minute. And then we carried uh, 28 rockets, I think about 14 rockets, seven on each side. And then each door gunner had a, a M60 machine gun. So. That's some serious business. <laughs> it was serious business. It's dangerous business because, you know, when you load the rockets, they're live. It was not a, not a game. Everything you did was was very serious. When, when you put the guns on it, it was a different deal. 
but I was responsible for, I wasn't responsible for the gun systems. The gun system uh, came under, under uh, armorers who took care of all that stuff. They set the guns up and then we, they were taken, we'd fight them in because the, uh, the, the crew, the, 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 uh, the, the, the pilot in the left seat, he had, a, he could aim the guns left and right, up and down. The uh, pilot, pilot in command in the right seat, that's the opposite of a, fi a fixed wing aircraft. The fixed wing aircraft, the captain sits on the left, the, the pilot in command, uh, helicopter he sits on the right. So his sight was in the middle of the windshield and he would, he would sight, the, look, they would put a mark on, on the windshield, just an X, like a magic marker. And that what, what was custom to that pilot. So wherever he was looking, if he was looking through that X, that's where those rockets were going to go. Wow. <laughs> that's a crazy targeting system. You just... Well, what, we, <laughs> what was fun, what was... I shouldn't say it was fun, it was kind of cruel. We, <laughs> we would get, in the summertime, we'd get a, a lot of uh, uh, enlisted... Uh, we get National Guard guys and, and other uh, people from the military but were part-timers and they come out and they give an indoctrination. And these, a lot of these pilots I flew with were Vietnam vets. They were going back for their second tour and they would take this helicopter and we'd be flying through a field and we'd be up around 120, 30 miles an hour. And when it, there'd be a tree line, you know, just a, a row of trees across the end of this field. And these guys are all expecting for that helicopter to jump up and over. They didn't jump. They would get down to the end of the field and they would bank it around. And they would bank it around so tight that those rotor blades were, you would have to be standing between that rotor blade and the ground. They just bank it around and go back the way they came from. And you could see those guys getting very, very nervous. And clenching. <laughs> they were clenching. Right? They were white knucklers, let me tell you. <laughs> but we, uh, the door gunners on, on these aircraft didn't use seat belts. We had a, a parachute harness with what they called a monkey strap, which came off the back of the harness, was anchored into the floor. So you could actually uh, stand up in the doorway and, and you were you were safe. You weren't going to go out of the, out the door. <laughs> God, they had at least some form of security measure. <laughs> Bill, you ever you ever meet up with your old uh, um, army buddies? No, I have not. I, I, uh, they have a, they, they've got an organization now, and they sent me a uh, an invitation. I was the first permanently enlisted man to sign into that company at Fort Fort Lauderdale, Kansas, and uh, it was me and a, a major and a, a warrant officer W two grade, and we were the only three guys in the company. And I, I signed in. I went up and did a, a check on the airplane. They had a helicopter they wanted to fly over the Christmas holidays and they needed a hundred hour checks. So I went and did the check, signed it off. They, they gave me my papers to go on leave. I came back like two weeks later and my God, there was about 40, 50 people in the company already. <laughs> they wanted to treat me like the new guy. So you got this all wrong. <laughs> I was first. I just left <laughs> I showed up. Give them a seniority check. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you spent all this time um, in the Army. Like, what eventually led you to uh, start working at Delta? Well, I worked for Delta before I went in the Army. Uh-huh. But the, uh, the guys I worked for, 
that like the, all the supervisors at, at, at Delta maintenance, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of the guys were maintenance supervisors. They were all World War II vets. They, they uh, were pretty serious about the military. They didn't think that hurt anybody. And I said, well, you know, it's just going to hold up my career by two years, but what the heck. But Delta treated me right while I was in the Army. They, uh, I got passes to go home on leave whenever I, I went home nine times in 21 months. I mean, that, that's the general didn't go home nine times in 21 months. I mean, I was doing good there. And then, uh, uh, I mean, it was just, I made rank. I, was, I came out at E5, which is pretty good. Equal to a buck sorry, except I was a specialist. And uh, it was a great, it was a good experience. I can't knock it. Once you got back to Delta from the from the military, uh, what were what some of the responsibilities that you held as a sort of an aircraft technician? Well, it varied over the years, but when we, we when we get it, when an airplane co comes into the gate, the, the first thing that they would do is they they chalk the wheels. So they had ground people, that, uh, what we call ramp service agents. They chalk the wheels. We do a walk around check all the engines, you, you look for leaks, you check the tires and brakes for wear, any kind of, any kind of uh, damage, like a bird strike, if they hit, a, uh, hit, hit the radome or one of the lead <laughs> engines of the wing, because a, a bird can take an engine out in a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> that is, well, you know that, uh, I think that that, uh, you know, Sully Sullenberger, the guy that landed on the river back in New York, they, oh, yeah. they took out both engines. Oh. So Yes, that's a sort of pretty serious deal. Do they have uh, safety measures for that now? Because I feel like birds are kind of like an ongoing, I mean, they're not going away <laughs> anytime soon. Well, they, they have, uh, they have, uh, uh, you see a lot of airplanes on, on the spinner, on the front of the engine, which, which could be, you know, it could be two and a half feet in diameter, or two feet in diameter could be, you know, much smaller than that. They got a spiral white, uh, white spiral painted on them. And somebody said that was supposed to uh, deter birds. But I've seen a lot of those spinners come in but, well, after a bird strike. Is it something about the shape? Well, it's, it, it, I don't know. They, they, I don't know if they're just mesmerized by the thing or what. <laughs> but they, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, things going on at big airports to deter the birds. And that's a, that, they take that very seriously. What was the the like the most important thing that you learned as an aircraft mechanic? Oh, you, to be thorough. You, you you cannot you cannot they you know you check they have a checklist for everything. So <clears throat> depending upon what, what how long the airplane was going to be on the ground and what you do, but one of the things you do after you do a thorough walk around, you have to service the oil in the engines or check the oil in the engine. We would uh, check the hydraulic fluids. And then you go up to the cockpit and then they have any write ups. So there was two log books, one for the cockpit, one for the cabin. And so we checked the, the, the cockpit log book and verify, you know, sometimes they have a dirty windshield, that's a no big deal, right? That's easy. But if they got have a, a problem with an engine or something like that, sometimes you have problems with the autopilot. And I didn't work on the avionics. I, I, there were people, that's all they did was avionics work. So radios and, and, and the navigation equipment and the radar, that was all special. Those are specialists. And then, uh, the, the, of course, the cabin, they would write up 15, 20 different things in the cabin. A seat won't recline, a seat light doesn't work, coffee maker doesn't work or it won't shut off. It just goes, 
So when an airplane comes in, hopefully you might have two, three guys on it, especially on a bigger airplane because you got you have to turn around in, in an X amount of time, and usually it's right at an hour. So you can really be uh, hopping around there, getting getting things back in service. Jeez. You only had an hour to to complete those checklists. Yeah, usually on a, on what you call a, a a through flight or an airplane that's just coming in turn a turnaround. That's crazy! At only an hour to make sure that <laughs> everything's well, functional. You got to realize that the crew was was doing a check the whole time they were in flight, right? So they were, they were, they were, they're checking the system. They've got an eye on all the systems. They, they know whether an engine's running hot or, or, or not making, producing full power. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of checks and balances on, on aviate, on heavy aircraft. So yeah. they're, they're letting you know what to look for when, right. when the plane's ready to get service. Right. Well, we go, you go through the whole, the whole aircraft checklist. Like how many how many things would you say were like on the list? Hundreds. Well, on some checks there's hundreds. <laughs> Absolutely. When it comes in for a, what they call a letter check, where it might be in the in the aircraft in the hangar for twenty four hours. Well, that, that you know that's a lot of work on that. And on a on a smaller check, a through flight, there might be twelve items, fourteen items. Okay, that's not so bad. Well, but they're they're all important items. I mean, you can't. Can't stuff off on any word of them. <laughs> well, that, that seems to be uh, those twelve or fourteen item lists seem to be the good days. Is there any like any parts of the job that you dislike? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I got had a really pretty good deal in life working for the airlines. I mean, it, it was a good job. It had good benefits, and uh, I didn't care for for night shift, <clears throat> midnights. At, uh, 11 to 7 in the morning. Some people loved it. There are people who'd rather work that than anything. That sounds terrible. I had to go to day shift. They threatened to quit. I like the night shifts better. <laughs> but I, uh, my, I was day shift and then afternoon shift. But on the other hand, I mean, then you had, so when you bid shifts, you have to decide what's most important to you. The, the, the hours, whether it be days, afternoon, or nights, or the days off. So <clears throat> my goal was day shift with weekends off. That's like, that was that was the, 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 the crown right there. Probably because you also had kids, right, at the time? Yeah, still have them. Yeah. <laughs> haven't abandoned me yet, although they, sometimes they want to. Yeah, I mean, if you were single, I, that might have been a different story, right? Like... Take Even days off, spend like, weekends uh, with your kids. Yeah, day shift is like the premium for most <laughs> people. Yeah. What was, um, okay, so after you worked at Delta, you retired and you went into being a tech inspector. And it's actually funny that the work you do as, or you did as a tech inspector for Formula was very similar to the job that you had, where you know you have a checklist and you have to make sure that everything meets all these criteria. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience as a tech inspector. Well, the chief inspector told us one day. He said, <clears throat> "You know, you, you, when you start inspecting these cars and you point something out that isn't right, you're at, these these students. That's their baby. They've been living with that car for a year, and 
they might get a little upset with you, but I never had anybody get upset. I mean, that was really the cat's pajamas. Everybody was pretty cool. We worked on the, you know, and we go through the whole thing. And I, I we never wanted this. Our goal was to not, we were not there to, to stop a car from running. We just want to make sure that when it went out, it was safe. So, you know, you have to have the catch cans on them. So we made sure the catch cans were all there of sufficient size. We made sure there were a few things they had to do with regulations. Uh, for example, there's the wheelbase. We measure the wheelbase. We would uh, uh, take and we check the, the, the distance between the roll bar and the, the front, hoop, front roll hoop and make sure that the tallest driver wearing a helmet could sit in there and we put a bar between the two roll hoops so that it wouldn't uh, see if his head was behind the bar. Uh, we made sure that the exhaust and everything was within a certain zone between the roll hoop and the rear tires. And it went on and on and on. It was all about safety. So if we spotted a bolt that was too short, maybe there wasn't enough thread sticking through the locking nut or there was a, a cotter pin missing, we just, they just go out and get a new one and put it right in right there. So we pretty much tried to get the car through a, a tech inspection the first time. I mean, we were, nope, this is wrong. Go back. None of that business. Because they stand in a hot sun out there waiting to come in the garage to be inspected. And nobody wants to do that. So, but I mean, we did everything we could. And we got along. I got along with all the students real well. I never had a bit of trouble. I thought, you know, some kids that, you know, I, I was always looking for guys from my home state of Wisconsin, you know, kind of razz them a little bit, but they, they went right along. They thought everything was cool. How much have you seen the rules change since you, since you started and when you stopped? Not that much. Well, technically you're still mentoring, so you're, yeah. you're, I'm sure you're keeping up with the rules. So like how much, well, how much have they changed? Not that much. The, the engines are getting bigger, but I think, the, the, you know, just to give an idea how tough uh, Formula SAE is. Formula SAE was uh, first started in uh, 79. It was in, in 79, the cars ran like a five horse Briggs and Stratton engine, which is basically what I had on a go kart when I was a kid. <laughs> so that was, but it, starting out in about 1980, that's when it started getting big. And it, it grew and grew and grew. Now, give you an idea how tough Formula SAE is. In the West, we have about between 90 and 100 uh, cars entered. Now, some of the cars, when I was teching, there were no electric cars. They were all uh, internal combustion cars. Uh, the, 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 the Michigan event, they get about 120 cars. And it used to be an event back east, I think, I'm not sure it was in Virginia or North Carolina. But they'll be about the same as we were out here in terms of car entrance. To give you an idea how just how tough Formula SAE is, it wasn't until 19 or 2017 in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, that 50% of the cars finished the endurance. Jeez. 50% of the cars, and that was the first year that 50% of the cars, when that guy, when they when they, when that got that car finished. They announced it, and it was like a major deal. Up to then, they'd never been. So, the, I mean, I saw a car from Auburn University that thing looked like it came out of a factory. It looked like it was one of a hundred. 
was, it was just gorgeous. There wasn't one thing. I mean, you couldn't say anything bad about that car. They were running in the endurance. I think I can't remember the first driver or the second driver. Going into one of the last turns, they lost the wheel. The whole hub of something just snapped off. The mm -hmm. spindle broke on the, on the left front. I mean, my last year in, in, in Lincoln in 17, they took uh, three different kids to the hospital for uh, uh, burns because of, of, of like radi radiator hoses breaking or other uh, coolant leaks. Jeez. Yeah, it, it's it's really intense. I mean, it, it's it's tough. And, and, and to see, uh, to, I mean, you just can't can't imagine what, what what kind of frustration goes into it. I I I would not recommend anybody spend their time. Well, this is me. This isn't this isn't anybody else. I don't see any sense in taking a car to to, um, to an event if it hasn't been tested for a month, because every car we took to event that didn't finish. When we brought back here and ironed the bugs out of it, they were bulletproof. They would run indefinitely. But you've got to get them to that point where they're bulletproof before you could, you should take them. It's just just that yeah. tough. Um, what was the weirdest experience? Or like maybe the weirdest thing that either happened during tech inspection or that somebody got sent back for? Or was what was the weirdest tech inspection non-pass that you saw? Well, I see several cars that were just, uh, uh, for example, uh, one car, and I, I'm not sure where they were from, but you know, Lincoln, Lincoln Welders, Lincoln Welding, the company, they have a tent at all the events where they, they set up and you can, if you have to do some welding, they provide the welder and the operator. I see cars where the, where the, the, the from the front roll hoop up to the up to the front frame of the car. If it went under another car, it would just drop right in on the driver's feet, it, or it hit him in the feet. And they had to weld that up. I mean, they had to put an extra bar in. I saw cars. Uh, uh, you know, you know what Percy is. You deal with Percy in uh, in uh, uh, Baja. Um, Percy. No. Percy is a series of three wheels. One represents the head, uh, the butt, and then. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, yeah, we have a version of that. We call it, I guess we call it Jake, no way? <laughs> I think right? we call it Jake. So oh. Percy, Percy has to fit, and then they come in with these templates. There's two templates. One template has to be able to drop down right into the cockpit, right down to the seat. And the second template has to be able to be passed. Under the through the frame all the way to the brake pedals. Uh, I seen one car that the, the the Percy would not drop in, and it was just by in a fraction of an inch. And and they begged and pleaded, and finally, when the the, the top people from SAE was out here from uh, Detroit, and uh, the top people from from this district got on the side and said, "Look, you can see." That Percy just does not drop in, so legally the, the car shouldn't run. But it's so close, and the drivers in this car are so much smaller than the, the, the optimum size 
that they, they, they could get out of that car, but they, we, we, you know, you have to do the uh, egress. You guys do egress? Get, yeah. Get out of the car in five seconds? Yeah. Well, some of these cars have really expensive steering wheels, a lot of technology in them. So there's a kid standing there. When that driver, when he blows the whistle, he'll snatch that wheel off. He hands it to the, the kid, grabs it, and they jump off. Well, the, the guy from Detroit caved in. But, but for one of them, about a quarter inch, that car was not going to go. Jeez. <laughs> that's not easy to fix either because it's like the whole, that's like almost the whole chassis. The you have to rebuild the frame. <laughs> yeah. I saw uh, the car from uh, uh, Berkeley go upside down on the tilt table. <laughs> that was not, <laughs> that wasn't necessary. Tell us about what happened on, on the tilt table. Well, the tilt, tilt table is supposed to stop just beyond 90 degrees. And it's not supposed to go over. And it did. The, the, the table kept going. It just took <laughs> them off. I think 90 degrees is the, is the, is the max. I'm not really sure. It's 90 or just a little bit more, but this thing went completely upside down. That was so you cool. had a student upside down on the top table. <laughs> but the harness held. So, and, it, and up until it was upside down, there were no leaks. Did they fall out? No. <laughs> Tilted the car back and away he went. <laughs> it took a while to get the car running again, but it was, it was good. It would be interesting to hear from UC Berkeley. Reach out to us if you're listening. <laughs> Berkeley, that was a long time ago. I, I bet you say all those people have jobs and are. Probably. You know, I wonder if their team knows that that happened. <laughs> sure they do. Yeah, I'm sure do you know. remember, do you happen to know what year that was? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, aside from being a tech inspector, um, you, you were mentoring the Baja team for since about uh, 11 or 12. Um, yeah, what are some of the, what are some of the like ups and downs of you being a mentor for that team? I'm sure they can, they can be a real pain in the, you know, what, when they're, uh, when you're there at their design reviews and stuff like that. So what are some of the key things that you notice when you're mentoring these guys, these guys? Well, you know, putting a team together is really tough because a lot of people get into the team, not knowing what to expect. And I think that for the most part, they're shocked because it's a, a building one of these cars is a really, really big deal. I mean, it, it, it's, it's over the top tough. And uh, a lot of kids, a lot of people get into it. First off, you think a team like, uh, uh, there's some team schools around here, they won't let anybody, uh, if you're like a freshman, they don't even want you to touch the car. If 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 uh, if you're like a sophomore, you can touch the cover with special permission. I mean, they just they, uh, it's, they think that only upperclassmen can can work on the car, and in many cases that's probably true. But uh, the the hard part about about building the car is, is holding people's interest. I think a lot of people, if they when they find out they can't work on the car the first year, they just go away. Cal State Los Angeles is unique. If you want to work on a car and help with the car, you can do it. And and uh, Cal State Los Angeles, because that's the students that have more access to the lab than any other school I know of. 
I mean, they, they just they just uh, let them let them go out there and just work on the car and and uh, a lot of times I've been on campus and those are the only places the engineering labs are the only places that have anybody uh, around. You know, the rest of the school is like a ghost town. <laughs> so I mean, it's really uh, really a, a a unique school and it's a great experience. I think that Cal State Los Angeles, from that standpoint, is is the very best. But uh, getting the kids, yeah, I bring a whole different perspective to things. I look at it from a practical standpoint. Uh, the most difficult system on a, on a formula car is the electrical. Because the electrical system literally goes from the from the nose to, to the back bumper. You know, you have the, up at the front, you have the, uh, the brake override switch. At mm. the back, you have the tail light. And in between, you have fuel pumps and fans and and uh, all your sensors, O2 sensors and throttle position sensors, and it goes on and on and on. And it's really a, a giant uh, a project. And I have always tried to get the, the, the electrical team to build a system that is 100% troubleshootable. Because if you, when, when you're out there at a competition and something isn't right, you do not have to be up, you don't want to be out there sorting wires out. You, I try to get to get the wires color coded or numbered, one or the other. So with a good a good schematic, so you can look at it and say, we're not getting a, a spark on the left cylinder. What's causing it? And be able to, to pinpoint it. Other, I mean, it's just it's just tough. And and, and then you got to get a team that works together real close, and there's no infighting and no and no. Uh, uh, Badgering one another. I mean, we, we were back at a competition. Uh, uh, University of Kansas uh, changed an engine. Changing an engine on one of these cars is a big deal. They changed an engine. They had a four-cylinder Honda. They pulled one out, put one in. And, and I mean, most of these cars, it's a giant, giant project. Yeah. Uh, but some of the teams, you know, some of these teams, like from Texas, UTA, UTA has, a, has every car they ever built. Wow. They have. I don't think our Formula team has, like, a uh, single one. <laughs> they have, if they have two, it's a lot. And the only reason we have two know. is because we got a new engine. Yeah. But they did a really big overhaul from automatic yeah. to manual. Is that what it was? Yeah, right. Yeah. But UTA, they the, they have a, a a room that's surrounded in glass where you see all the cars. Wow. That's the first car they ever built. Just the space for that alone is incredible. <laughs> Just think of how much money is wrapped up in tires and wheels and brakes. There's tires, wheels, and brakes on all those cars since 1980. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, a lot. And all the engines. But uh, some of these big schools have endowments. Well, they'll have, they were given out like a billion dollars to invest. And the endowment pays out, they can take as much as $100,000 to build a car. So some of these schools will build an IC car and an electric car. They're identical in every way, except for the how they're propelled. It just goes on and it's fantastic. That's so, crazy. I mean, they're not worried, they're not considering selling fruit bowls or, or <laughs> you know, 
uh, having a, a night at a pizza shop or anything like that. They just got the money there. I, mm -hmm. I we went down one time. They asked us to come down to uh, 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 Cal State Long Beach. We went down and saw their lab and and their shop, and uh, and and but they had about the same issues that we had. Uh, they had they took the car apart for something, and they're having trouble getting it back together. And I mean, I mean. You can just see the tension building up in these students' faces when they're trying to put this car together at the last minute. This is like two days before they're supposed to be leaving for the event. And it hadn't, hadn't run in, in about three weeks. Jeez. And uh, we've been down, we went down to uh, 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 Irvine, UC Irvine, uh, to inspect one of their cars for them just to give an idea of what it was going to be like. And uh, they had... 10 students, I don't know if you've ever been to Irvine, but right outside of their labs, they had ten, the, the car was sitting there, they had 10 students right around, they were gonna go with the car to the event. And then they have a loading dock. And up on that loading dock was about 50 more students that are part of the team. And, and they, uh, and every time we said something, the professor was telling them, write it down, take a note of that. So he, they're intense, I mean, they were really, concerned about what was being done and what was being said and the reason for it. So it's, it's really a, a, a big deal. We went to RIT um, and over there, their machine shop is sponsored. So they get new like lays and mills and stuff like that every, what is it, like three years or so. And it's like at Cal State LA, I don't think our machines have been replaced since the day they brought them in. <laughs> well, no, we now have what they call the makerspace. Yeah, Chris yeah, Martin. but I think even the machines in there are are old. Well, some yeah. of them are new. Like we just oh. got CNCs, but I'd, like the lathes and the mills haven't weren't they already there? They've been there. <coughs> we have uh, uh, two brand new Haas mills, oh. and uh, they got a brand new uh, uh, water jet, big new water jet, computer operated water jet. Yeah, the water jet is new. <laughs> Started and flooding the fall. <laughs> laser cutters, and uh, it, it's it, really nice. It, it's very nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Put that together. He did That's, like, one of the biggest things that I think Cal State LA is, like, because you had mentioned you went to UCI and you noticed that the, um, that the professor there was sort of encouraging the students to take notes. And that's probably one of the biggest things that Cal State LA lacked in the past... Um, probably not counting this year, but the, the past few years where the teachers aren't, the professors aren't necessarily backing all these students and especially the, the college with funds and things like that. Um, so it, it's great to have people like you, Bill, and like Bachman that are actually pushing these students because if you guys weren't there, <laughs> I think it'd be a bit of a different story. Um, but yeah, I think we need to definitely continue to push for more mentorship and people like you, Bill, that are willing to help us out. Um, yeah. You know, the original reason to have mentors, and there was probably about 10 schools that had mentors, uh, the reason was to, to try and boost the standings of the Southern California schools. But uh, these big schools like University of Wisconsin, Madison, and and uh, one Texas schools and 
Auburn, back in Georgia. A lot of those students come from far from the campus. So they don't go home on the weekends. They're there for three, four, five months at a time. And I think they uh, have more time to put into the cars and to the projects. And so I think that's why they tend to do uh, a little better. Uh, yeah, that's that's true for sure. Because Cal State is a huge commuter school, huge commuter school. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hardly yeah. anybody lives on campus. At least, like, if you really bring it down to Baja and Formula, like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who was actually living on the campus. There've been a couple who lived off campus, but they lived like really close by. Yeah. But I don't know that anybody was dorming on the campus. Usually it's like international students or out of state students who take up the little like dorm area that they have. Um, yeah. Do you think that after instating that the mentorship program for SoCal that the teams started to do better? And would you say like they they need to kind of like re-implement it now that a lot of the mentors that that were there in the first round like have kind of fizzled out a little bit i, I would say it would be a good idea i don't see how it can't hurt <laughs> you know people are willing to come out and spend their time there and just get it give advice and, and point things out uh it can't hurt it, it, it's definitely gonna be of some help the, the thing of it is a lot of a lot of students kind of don't like you to tell them. They 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 they, they want to they want to steer the ship, huh? Yeah. Well, the problem is is that uh, they they don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and and <laughs> it, it sounds kind of goofy, but the fact that matter sounds is, familiar. <laughs> I mean, you can look at a guy and how he approaches the the the, the problem. And, and have a pretty good idea how they're going to pull it off and, and how they're going to, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But a lot of kids come in there and they, they put, they really put a lot of effort into it and they, and they gain from it. I, I think if any student was on, on a team and I was uh, doing the hiring for a company, if, I, if, you were, if you were on a team a year or two, I, I almost look at that at almost as if you had a year of work experience. And if you're on a really crack team, one that, that, that was a top 10 finisher, boy, that, that, that really carries some weight. But you know, you, you're, no team is any stronger than its weakest link. I mean, they just, they just- what you don't. think was like the biggest, um... The biggest thing that one of the formula students have gotten into after, like, after they graduated. Well, well I mean, a lot of them are working for Cummins and, and uh, uh, General Dynamics, and and uh, I mean, I don't know where all of them are, but you know, a lot of a lot of students want to uh, get into to like Formula One or IndyCar or NASCAR, and. Those are usually millionaires or billionaires' pet projects, and uh, I don't think that's a real stable uh, work experience. Whereas a, a job with somebody like General Dynamics or, or General Motors or Ford, when you when we go to, to a, a Formula event, you'll see Honda there, uh, you'll see a Ford there, you might see uh, several other companies there, 
And they go uh, from team to team to team, wanting to know if there's any uh, graduating seniors. Uh, do you have any graduating seniors here who would like to talk to us about a job? So, I mean, you cannot, I cannot put enough emphasis on being on, on a collegiate design team, whether it's, uh, you know, formula or super mileage or aero design or any of them. I mean, what, what you get out of that in, in terms of learning is priceless. What was um, the one of the schools that kind of like really stood out to you as being like a really successful team? Uh, University of Kansas Lawrence. University what, do you, what did you like about how their team ran or like what was it about that team that stood out to you? Well, they were the guys I told you uh, changed an engine in their car. They come, there, they come there in a spare engine. Another team that's really strong was uh, uh, Michigan State. We stayed at a hotel, and uh, I look out in the, in, the, in the parking lot, and there's two box trucks that get rent from uh, Hertz. And there was a bunch of students out there, and I said, what's going on? They said, oh, uh, we blew an engine just before we, we came to the event, and the guys have three engines up in the room and they're trying to make one out of the three. And they were, so these guys are, are ripping down three engines to put one back together in their, in their hotel room. Uh, the, the hotel had no idea, I'm sure. But, <laughs> I mean, and, and what they did was they took the car, they took, they went to, to the school with a dummy car. I, said, I don't know if it was a dummy car, was it? but somewhere now that they registered. And they were ready to go right up to the last day if they had to, 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 to qualify and get through tech inspection. I mean, those guys were really, they were into it. And then there's uh, the University of Rochester from New York. They're a top team. And, and uh, Auburn, uh, University of Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, uh, Madison. A lot of top teams. A lot of good teams come down from Canada. What do you think is like your favorite build like what what parts of the car in combination do you think kind of like worked best or or was like really impressive to you or like what was your favorite build on the car the suspension is very tough the rear suspension is tough the front suspension is tough and uh, it just you, you try to get some ideas across to the students you know there's some things that make it life a lot easier. Like when you're two, uh, the two, the bars where you attach your, your front and rear suspension to, I like to see them parallel so that they tend to work a little easier. Uh, somebody told the students that, that you don't need to have any adjustments in your suspension. I said, you should sell that to, to Ford and Chevy because every car they build has <laughs> suspension adjustments. Yeah. And it just goes on and on. I, mean, I, I really, I get a kick out of it because they really uh, have some set ideas. If you just, I guess it's good. if you have you think you got a good idea, stick with it until you find out it's not a really good idea. But I get it just goes on and on and on. I think one of the craziest things for me was how kind of people are. I don't know how long this has been around. Um, I'm not too in the loop about formula, but I uh, one of the crazy things that I saw was that they're they're kind of moving to like replace carbon fiber bodies with like parachute material 
Yeah. Has that been around for a very long time? You know, a lot of light aircraft, the wings are covered in fabric. You know how about that? in the competition, though? Like, have well, a lot of cars done that in the past? I don't well, think so. that would even pass tech, no? Well, because I think teams have gone to competition like that already. No? I don't think the body has too much to do with. Uh, they don't rely on the body components as a safety factor <laughs> or a streamlining factor. So, I mean, I was talking to our guy, one of our kids was working on, on the uh, aero package, aero package and just the body in general. I know that's Andy. <laughs> I'm trying to get him to, uh, I said, you can shape this out of, out of, uh, out of, uh, uh, just styrofoam, put your glass over it, make it any shape you want, fiberglass it, resin it, and then when it's all set up, you can dissolve the body, the, the fiber styrofoam, you can make the panel the shape any, any shape you want. But uh, the, 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 fat, the cars that are fabric, I haven't seen too much of that. It's like a, I don't know what parachute materials made out of I would say it's probably it's either like a nylon or polyester yeah. blend something I don't know <laughs> <laughs> um, you know a lot of kids uh, a lot of cars uh, they put these big fancy aero packages on <laughs> and I'll tell you what that I'm not so sure about that that was a different deal as far as I'm concerned I mean I speaking of like these really like cool innovations that these teams come up with. Um, we do have someone that asked a question through one of our forums and they wanted to know like, what are some of the common oversights or mistakes that you've seen throughout cars and teams throughout the years? Cause you mentioned some really great builds, but there are definitely some oversights that people tend to not look at. I think that uh, that's really tough. Just you know, a lot of the people I'm welding on these cars haven't done a lot of welding. So, <laughs> so, so really, I've talked to people who learned to weld on the, on the car that they brought to the competition. They were beautiful. I mean, they look very good. But there's a lot to a weld other than looking good that has to be you know, penetration and making sure that everything was fit right before you welded. But it's I really don't know. I, I think that the best the best thing for these these uh, kids to do is to just work within your limits, design within your limits, design within your ability to fabricate. Because a lot of people go out there and, and they uh, they do some strange things. There's no there's no uh, uh, nothing nothing can replace testing. The more you test those cars and, and, the, and the more time you put into to driving them and, and making sure everything's gonna work, the better off you are. That's just as, that's just as simple as it gets. A lot of people, uh, uh, you know, you have to make sure that everything on that car goes full travel. So like if your rear suspension, you have to make sure you can move it up and down, full travel, front suspension, full travel, and make sure that nothing's gonna bind. Because when things get in a bind, they work hard and then break. Yeah. And, and, and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of the competition and it's 
is bad seen. I don't think, I, I would never recommend anybody uh, take a car to competition that isn't running. If you, if, if you think, if you go to competition and they, if they tech the car, that's it. That, that's that your, that, that your car. And if, if you don't take it and get it checked in, if you just go back there and do the, 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 uh, the sales talk and give it uh, uh, the cost uh, presentation, you're okay. You've got the experience for that. But if you take the car back and let them tech it, <clears throat> whether, whether it runs or not, you, you got to start it with a new car the next year. And that, that, does not, that doesn't work. That, that's a bad deal. Oh, okay. So if you bring it to tech, you can't. Once it goes, tech, you can't use it. No, that's right. That, that, so oh. if you got a car in fifteen that wasn't really ready to go, but you got to tech it, you can't run that car again. One, wow. It's one-time use. I actually didn't know <laughs> that all yeah. formula cars were one-time use cars. Yeah. So it, it's best. It's in your best interest when you take a car back there to make sure it's a good car. It's ready to go. I mean, what stops people from, you know, going through tech and then still using the same car next year? Like maybe just change some colors and, or how does that, how do, how do they verify next year? I don't know how they that? verify. I really don't. I do know that they'll disqualify if they catch it. Oh, okay. They will catch So it's kind of the honor system, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get involved in it. Yeah, that's a risky that's a risky thing to do exactly um, so we'll do like the last uh competition question um favorite and least favorite competition that you went to with our formula team boy well the first the first one was really good the first the first competition we went to we we uh we did a, a had a, a we had one problem our side impact bars weren't right and we had to borrow some tubing and weld them in and god that was just right down to the wire to get that through tech and get it all checked out and everything and and that was a that was probably the the, the hardest that team ever worked together in all the time i've been with them that, <laughs> uh, uh, it's always like the the difficult moments but uh we had a really the last time I went to Tech, I want to say it was seventeen, and we went to Tech. I went to went to Lincoln, and uh, we went back there, and uh, we we couldn't make the car go. Uh, the, the couldn't pass sound, and so what they did was, and this is all completely legal. They took the they take the muffler off. And they wanted to borrow something for scrub, something to, to put in there to calm it down, quiet it down. So they borrowed some, uh, I think it was Bright Boy scrubbing pads, you know, like for pots and pans in a restaurant. <laughs> and they like stuffed, a, almost like a sponge, right? No, it, it looks like a. Uh, oh, what's it's it? like a wooly, like a wooly sponge. Yeah, kind of. But it, it, it's metal. It's metal, and they put they put it in the, in the uh, muffler and tried it, and it worked. <laughs> it worked good. Now, but it, but you don't, and then, and then from there, so the way it went, 
once you went through the visual tech inspection, where they look at the car, they measure everything, check all your nuts and bolts and washers and safety wires and all that. Then you go, go to the tilt table. From the tilt table, you go to sound. And then from sound, you go to uh, the brake test. The brake test, they, they run the, you run the, run, excuse me, you run the car down the, the track, so just a, like a, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards. You run this thing down this track as hard as the car will go, and you hit the brakes. When you hit the brakes, it's supposed to stop in a straight line, which means all four wheels are going to lock up at the same time. And all four wheels have to lock up. If, I don't care if you can stop on a dime with two, they want four. So we, we went through that and we passed that, we got our stickers. And the next thing we were gonna to go to was uh, acceleration, I think. And then from there to skin pad and then to slalom. To, to uh, no, this is called slalom. But I forget, uh, so anyway, when we got out, out, of, out of the brake test and got out of our stickers, that was too late. They'd shut everything else down. So the next day was Saturday, and that's the endurance. And so because of our stature, the fastest, the cars with the most points go last. The cars with the fewest number of points go first. So they go out there, take the car in, to, uh, for uh, endure, for the endurance, and it wouldn't start. And they gave us probably 45 minutes or an hour of, of opportunity to uh, uh, to start that car, and it would not start. And it, they just put, uh, people go ahead, go ahead of us. They put, we bought the car over by the fence, so there were the, the three guys with the car on the inside, and there was. Well, actually three, four guys with the car. The driver, both, the, the driver's going to drive, the second driver, and then uh, I think there's two people that could help with the belt, seat belts. We worked on it. We did everything we could do to get that car to run. It would not start. When it came back here, they worked on that car, I can't tell you how long, until they finally got it to start. Now, I never did find out exactly why it wouldn't start, but I will tell you something. I am convinced that it was those bright boy uh, polishers that they stuck in the exhaust because I have a 90 GMC pickup. I left the house, I went down to the corner, that's about 500 feet, I made a right turn and it quit. And we got that car back in my driveway and we worked on that truck long and hard. You know what fixed it? Take a guess. What do you think caused that truck to not to stop and not start? I'll tell you what we did. We, re, we, we, we rebuilt the electronics package in the distributor, replaced all the wires, the cap and rotor, the plugs. We rebuilt the throttle body and we, re, and we, uh, we uh, replaced the timing chain and belt, uh, gears. Now, what do you think made it run? I don't know. I'll tell you what made it run. The catalytic converter, catalytic converter was plugged. Oh, <laughs> was it really? That's what did it. 
And when we just when we so got, this was suggested to me that that was a problem, we dropped the header pipes off the manifold and it fired right up. Put them back on, it wouldn't run. So we left them down. So what we did, we put the header pipes up and we cut the pipe off right in front of the catalytic converter. I went to a muffler shop and got a new, a new catalytic converter. Whoa, and you think that's, that's what might have caused that's that? I think that? That's what I think caused it to not run. I think that if, if, if they were dropped that muffler off, but I, but I didn't, I hadn't had that experience with my catalytic converter prior to that. Had mm -hmm. I had that experience, I would say, let's drop the, the muffler off and it would probably have started. Damn. But then you had to pull all the bright boys out of it and they wouldn't have passed on checking, but we wouldn't have worried about that. We just ran anyway. Yeah. That's the story that blows your mind, but that's the facts. And speaking about, you know, your pickup, you do have a 37 Plymouth. Uh, what can you tell us about that one? You say you, say you still have it. It's your first car. Well, you know, when you're 14, 15 years old, you hear that word old car. I mean, there is, man, that's like. Time stops. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that, that's the whole thing. What kind of old car? Ah, you wouldn't like it. That was my dad. Ah, you wouldn't like it. Why? Well, let me decide if I like it or not. He got it, and I drove it all through high school. And uh, then I decided to put an Oldsmobile engine in it, a 303 Olds, which was a 1953 engine. And we put it in, but we never really got it running very good. And then I, w I went away to school. My dad said, you know, you got you to gotta do something with that car. You can't just leave it in the garage. I need to park my car in the garage. So I take this car, and we took it out to my friend's farm. We put it out behind a chicken coop, and it sat there from 63 till, I don't know, 98, so, Oh, my God. And then, and then about 89, the family sold the farm. And if a friend of mine called me up, he says, Kiefer's are selling the farm. You can't, you got to get that thing out of there. I said, go and get it, and, and uh, he had an oil business. He had a big, a big lot where they, they operated a, a, an oil business out of, and they went and got it and put it in the, out in the lot. And, and he was always pulling my leg. He put signs on it for sale cheap and stuff like that. <laughs> so I said, you find somebody that will pull that thing as far as Denver, and I'll go over to Denver and, and rent a, tra a truck and bring it over here. And he got a guy to do it. <laughs> So the guy put it on a U-Haul trailer, which I paid for. He brought it as far as Denver. And uh, uh, we met him not far from the Denver airport. We had a rental truck. We hooked on and brought it home. And that's at my driveway for a long time. And then I started working on it. So it's a, it's a, it's a forever project. That's awesome. I mean, did, did you mention that? It belonged to your father's best friend's family. Did it mean a lot to him, that car? Or well, was it just... I, I don't know if it did. But uh, he, uh, he he got it. I, I, he really didn't want to get it, I don't think. I don't think he really thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But, <laughs> but we had a lot of fond memories of that old Plymouth, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's cool. It was an exciting experience. That's a that's a crazy trip that that car took. 
having sat in a barn for, gosh, close to 30 years. Yeah. It's, it's one of those deals where they could have gone by the wayside at any moment. But they said, uh, you know, when they sold the farm, that's what started the, the, the machine in motion again. <laughs> and you said it still works, huh? What's that? Still runs? No, well, I... I took the old the old mobile engine out and gave it to another friend who's gonna probably put it in some kind of a hot rod because that's kind of like a a classic hot rod engine from the fifties, you know. And uh, I'll probably put a Corvette engine or some kind in it. Jeez, <laughs> that'd be cool. You don't have to put a lot of power. The original engine was eighty five, about eighty five horsepower, and it uh, was fast enough to kill you. So you don't really have to put a lot of horsepower in one of these things to. To get it going. Serious, serious damage. But it's a, it was a fun ride. Have you had any other like really cool projects that you had the opportunity to work on in your lifetime? We, uh, uh, well, besides helping a couple of daughters remodel houses and stuff like that, and then uh, we built that uh, camper, a truck camper. That was a major project. That was two and a half years. But everywhere he goes, everywhere he goes, he gets a lot of uh, positive comments on it. I think you said that camper was um, was in a movie or something. No, he, the the guy who owns it was in the, worked in the movie industry. In the movie industry is like a film. A film guy. So he so we got that put together. We had it in my driveway for like ninety days. <laughs> I've been putting the interior in it. <laughs> and that just goes on and on and on. Oh, it's how, long, how long did it take you guys to fix it up? Two and a half years. <laughs> Two and a half years. I mean, it's a major project. Huge. But what kind of work did you guys do on it? Everything. We, <laughs> from the basic idea, the basic concept, to fabric. Yeah. Okay. So we did, we did not built make the windows that's obvious we bought windows six of them we bought a hatch for a sailboat an aluminum hatch that we put up on top over the, the what we call the bunkhouse where the bed is for an escape hatch uh, of course we didn't we didn't make the the, the the two burner stove or the microwave but you know it, it's got two two uh Two uh, uh, golf cart batteries that operate a uh, <laughs> static inverter for AC electrical, and then we can also plug the camper into like uh, campground power. So we had to make sure you could isolate the two, because you don't ever want two different sources of AC electrical coming together, because if they're out of phase, the excitement begins. So we <laughs> set on the, on, the, on the inverter. That it, it's a smart inverter that it will, within a millisecond, it senses the, the phase and will kick it off. I said, I just assume not believe that. So we put a switch in, so it's either one or the other or off. But it's got a, a, a refrigerator, a furnace, uh, <laughs> air conditioning, you know, hot and cold running water. That's, that's better than my house. No. <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. It's, this is not a, 
this was not there was a lot of a lot of thought had to go into this thing because to uh, to do something like that there's no going back you know when you start closing stuff up and putting it together you have to make sure the wiring's right the plumbing's right and this goes on and on and on just to do the interior it took us almost 90 days i mean we were fooling around with that lance lance camper out in palmdale they turn out about 25 30 campers a day so just to give you an idea but they got a lot of people and they got a you know a bulletproof system we were cutting and measuring and fitting and stuff like that so between the, the, the ac two electrical systems the ac systems and a dc system that takes care of all the internal lights and the water pump and stuff like that it gets pretty uh, involved then you got all the clearance lights that are on it for make it road legal and this goes on and on and on it's if you got a picture of it, we'd love to see it. That'd be that'd be really cool. I'll have to find one for you. Yeah, that'd be great. I vote. I, I, we he between the guy who owns the camper and my wife, they took a lot of pictures of it, and uh, I put it put together a book. It's about thirty eight pages, but I had Costco put uh, printed up with all the pictures, and it shows it step by step everything that went into this uh, this <gasps> topic as far as starting with the bare skeleton then all the frame members that go up into it the only thing on that outside of that campus that i knew we could not do were the four corners where the sides and the ends and the top all transition it, 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 it just i didn't i don't know of anybody who can do it but <laughs> i found i found a guy and he it was a metal spinner he is a metal spinner in compton and he uh, uh he uh, I called him up. I said, "Can you spin a thirty-inch bowl?" <laughs> well, I called the I called the one guy in, in San Pedro, and I said, "Hey, can you spin a thirty-inch bowl?" He said, "No, but my cousin can." So I got in touch with his cousin over in Compton, and, I, and he spun two bowls. He said, "When you when you get a bowl, you can't cut it in quarters because uh, you have to have a little bit of a flange on either side of the bend." So he we took two bowls. And uh, we cut cut them up, so we got two spare corners if we ever need them. But uh, man, what a job! What's the name of the book? The what? The book. It's just Kevin's camper. Kevin's camper. <laughs> There's exactly four copies. I <laughs> Kevin has two. But people are always asking, "How do you do it?" You know. So I gave him one for the house and one for the camper. So when he when he goes someplace, I said, "I'll show you how we did this." <laughs> That's a cool keepsake. Well, it, it it was a major project. It was not it was not an overnight deal. I tell you, that. It was <laughs> lots of work. It was just uh, the cutting and gluing of all the wood and all the sheet metal. I mean, we, we attached the, the sides of the camper to the to the wooden frames. Using a uh, 5200, which is a, a marine uh, glue, right. and then we put pop rivets into it to hold it. But we put the, we strapped it together with a uh, cargo straps. Those orange cargo straps from uh, Harbor Freight. We've Got done some uh, some work on Baja with those two. <laughs> we almost had 30 or 40 of them. We just wrap them around, pull it up tight, and get everything in place, and hope. 
<laughs> if everything right place that doesn't shift, then you shoot the rivets in and keep on going. That's the most important step. Cross your fingers. <laughs> I think about this all were important because you, you, there's no going back. You, you know, once you finish an area, you know, you start putting the interior in, you don't want to be ripping it out. It's just too much work. We had, ca you know, cabinets over the, the kitchen counter and cabinets over the, the refrigerator and over the dinette, and it just goes on and on and on. That's a cool project. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Oh, we got one more last question for you, Bill. Um, probably one of the most important ones. Where do you see yourself in the future? Boy, I don't know. Right now, I'm rebuilding our boat. Not completely rebuilding. We did that in 01. But uh, we're getting ready to paint it. That's a big project. I don't know. Somebody will come on with some goofy idea and I can't resist it. <laughs> I just, if it sounds like fun, I try it. I try to not, I try to not overextend myself too much. So it can be pretty rough. And everybody's got a pet project they want to work on. But I, I, uh, I want to get my, get this Plymouth running. I can get that going. I don't know. Always, always something. <laughs> always something huh yeah there is it's always something. I, I don't let it uh, bother me too much because I uh, I just keep on forging ahead well we hope that you have a lot of projects in store for the future that you can have lots of fun with, with rebuilding and all of these you know not only automotive but other projects as well but thank you Bill for taking the time to talk to us about your experiences as a tech inspector in the military and all the fun stuff that you've done. Um, we hope to have you on again. And so that wraps up uh, episode five of the Staying Money podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. See you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Staying Money Podcast. I'm Mr. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok with the handle CastleyBahaICE. You can also check out our website, CastleyBahaICE, if you want to check out more stuff about our team. And we also have some merch on there as well. You can also join our Staying Money Podcast subreddit if you'd like. Thanks again for listening. See ya. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Staying Muddy podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Baja SAE in Cal State Los Angeles. <laughs>